whiz kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning. Hank Aaron was beginning. One Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew 'em all from Boston to Dubuque, especially with. Radio legend, controversial, outspoken. We're going to talk a number of topics with Bob Costas. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Uh, we're now joined by uh, Missouri State Representative from Springfield, Sarah Lambie. Coach Ken Carter. How you doing today, Coach? Well, we're not always honored, but we're honored today to have one of the great legends of sports and certainly one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived with us, and that is the great Jerry West. His book is West by West, My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Jay Paterno, the author of Paternal Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father. It's fall and it's football, and I'm I'm assuming you're excited, but I'm also assuming there are mixed emotions. Uh, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously, I'd like to be coaching, but you know, those things will that'll come with you know in time. Cardinal President Bill DeWitt III has joined us. Bill, how are you this afternoon? Hey, Kevin, how you doing? Well, we welcome one of my favorite people in all of sports, former Cardinal General Manager and shortstop. Dal Maxville to the show. Maxie, how are you? I am very good, Kevin. Real good, as a matter of fact. How about yourself? And we welcome the athletic director from the University of Oklahoma and the current sitting chairman of the men's basketball committee for the NCAA tournament, Joe Castiglione, our good friend. Joe, how are you today? Excellent, Kevin. And that bumper music got me fired up, and uh, and you're at Harpo's. <laughs> Holy cow. Blues owner Tom Stillman joins us. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations on that fantastic announcement. 
Thanks very much. We're really excited about it. We've wanted to get an outdoor game for quite a while, and, and uh, now we've got one. All right, we've got Norm uh, Norm Stewart, the, the Mizzou legend, is with us here. Coach, uh, thanks for joining us. It's always great to catch up with you. How are things today with you in Virginia? Oh, we're doing great, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. And John Sunbold, one of the greats in Mizzou basketball history, uh, was featured as part of the documentary, and John joins us now. Hi, John. How are you? Kevin, I'm doing great. Uh, how about yourself? And Tim Donahue, former NBA official, who uh, joins us now. He has written book, a book about his life in the NBA. Tim Donahue joins us now. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. We go to the uh, phone line with Dan Deardorff visiting with us, the Hall of Famer, and, of course, uh, just ending his career at CBS but beginning his career as the one of the voices of Michigan football again. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello, Kevin. How are you this afternoon? You hear that song. Of course, that's one of the songs from the soundtrack of the 2001 movie Remember the Titans. And one of the subjects, the main subject of that movie, was head coach Herman Boone from T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria. And Coach Boone joins us this afternoon. Hello, Coach Boone. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kevin Slayton, along with former Cincinnati Bengal guard Dave Lapham. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kevin Slayton, alongside J.C. Pearson. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. Don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening? Holy cow! And a good Wednesday afternoon, St. Louis. Kevin Slayton with you right here in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court. On KevinSlaytonShow.com, glad you're with us for this afternoon's show. This is where we do our sports show every day, live at noon, right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. It'll be on podcast on our website, as well as Spotify, Apple, Amel, uh, Amel, Apple, Amazon, Google, and any other place you listen to podcasts. Our phone lines are always open on this show, 636-348-4460. 348 Grab yourself an ice-cold Monster Energy drink. You're feeling tired. You just went to that gym, or maybe you're going to the gym. You need that boost or that push. You need to focus better, that punch of energy to get you through the workout. You need Monster Energy drink. Where it's more than just a drink, it's a lifestyle in a can. Monster Energy, unlike the Cardinals, represents the relentless pursuit of victory. Being your best. That's what they're all about. Being at the top of your game just like Chris Eubanks was at Wimbledon today. It's the most badass energy drink on the planet. Monster energy drink. Unleash the beast. And we unleash the beast at Wimbledon on Medvedev today in the form of Chris Eubanks of the United States at Wimbledon. And he succumbed in five sets. The match just ended. It looked as though we were in for a second consecutive major upset at the hand of Chris Eubanks, the American player. He led two sets to one in the best of five. He lost a fourth set tiebreaker, seven to four, and I think that took it out of him. I think that finished him. He lost the fifth set, 6-1. We tip our caps to Chris Eubanks and hope that we have not heard the last of him. What a match. What a performance. I thought he had it. 
that tiebreaker just, mm, he was on the verge of winning in four sets and then lost it. So the last American is gone from Wimbledon. Usually they're gone a lot sooner than that. And the crowd loved him as he exited uh, the court playing. It's, it's, I think he played on center court today. That would have been a tremendous advantage to go to the semifinals for him in his career, but uh, he still made it to the quarters, and we'll see how he does going forward. Sometimes a loss like that can be devastating. But we tip our caps to Chris Eubanks, great performance at Wimbledon. Well, last night we had the All-Star game in baseball. We'll talk about that a little bit. You're going to hear from John Moselock and what the Cardinals have to do and how they've pretty much given up on this season and how he falsely takes blame for it, but he really doesn't. We'll hear from Moselock. We'll also talk to you about the latest in the Northwestern football hazing case where Pat Fitzgerald, the head coach, has lost his job. What Rob Manfred, the erstwhile commissioner of baseball, has to say about Pete Rose getting into the Hall of Fame, being reinstated from his lifetime ban. We have a columnist in the USA Today, a black writer, who has written a column about Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern, calling it a racially motivated coach who was a racist. Of course someone had to bring race into it, right? Why not? They always do. Usually a white guy that does it. This time it's a black writer for USA Today. And his, his grammar in the column, either that or the copy editor, needs to go back to school. And if it was done intentionally, whoever was responsible for it looks stupid. So we'll cover all of that ground. Guess who's uh, involved in the distribution and promotion of the movie Sound of Freedom? None other than the former sportscaster here in town at Channel 4, Zipper Zeppa. Now, you might remember that Zip, when he left Channel 4, he completely got out of television and sports and got in. Uh, he was a strong Christian and got involved in Christian efforts throughout the country. And he's done a wonderful job. And he was one of the speakers at several events to try to raise money to get this movie distributed. You'll hear a little bit from, from Zip, but you're going to hear more of it from him tomorrow morning on our current events show. I'm going to see that movie after the show today, and I'll report back in tomorrow. So the National League wins the All-Star game on a two-run homer in the eighth inning by Wandy Diaz of the Tampa Bay Rays. But what was most important about the All-Star game last night were the ways that Fox goes about trying to destroy everything that they televise. And in addition, the presence of former Cardinals, not current Cardinals, but former Cardinals in the starting lineup the night before in the home run derby. Both Adolis Garcia and Randy Rosarina were in the home run derby, both former Cardinals that the Cardinals quit on, now both all-stars. One started in right field for the American League. The other started in left field for the American League. So former Cardinals had the corner outfield positions manned last night. And amazingly, right off the start of the game, Garrett Cole, the Yankee pitcher pitching for the American League, gives up a fly ball into right field that Garcia struggled with because of the sun. The shadows had crept in. Remember, the game was in Seattle, and they kept the roof open. So the sun in the right fielder's eyes was brutal. He fought it all the way, then made a leaping catch against the wall. The very next hitter, 
hit a long fly ball to left field, and a Rosarina made a leaping catch against the wall. You couldn't have scripted it any better if you wanted to embarrass the Cardinals and John Mozeliak. The two guys he quit on, he traded a Rosarina to Tampa in return for Matthew Libertor. He released Garcia for financial considerations, who's now the middle of the order for the first place Texas Rangers. I mean, it's pretty incredible what these guys are doing once they get out of here. Garcia's hitting 261 with 23 home runs, 75 RBIs. 75 RBIs. A Rosarina's hitting 279 with 16 home runs and 58 RBIs. The only Cardinal represented in the game was Arenado. He went 0 for 2. But the third former Cardinal was the starting pitcher for the National League. And that would be Zach Gallon. And what did Zach Allen do? Well, you know, the pitchers only pitch one inning in these all-star games. And he pitched his one inning, gave up one hit, and struck one, struck out one. An easy inning for a guy who's won 11 games already at the all-star break. 11-3 and three for the first place Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, what do all three of those players have in common other than being ex-Cardinals? Gallon, if you recall, was traded to the Marlins, along with Sandy Alcantara, who won the Cy Young Award last year for the National League. In return, they got Marcelo Zuna to St. Louis. He was here and rented. Cardinals kind of rented him for a year. Maybe was it two or you can't remember. It's so uneventful. And then he was gone. He's now struggling to stay in the Braves lineup. Not very good, but Cardinals got nothing. So all three of these players not only have being a former Cardinal in common and being an all-star who started in the game last night in common, but all three are playing for different teams, all of which are in first place. Zach Allen pitches for the first-place Diamondbacks. Rosarina's in the outfield for the first-place Rays. And Garcia's in the outfield for the first-place Texas Rangers. Where are the Cardinals? In last place. 14 games under five hundred at the All-Star break, having played 90 games, nine more than the midway point. We're not at, we're not at the halfway spot here, folks. We're well into the second half of the season already. This season is one that will be historical for the Cardinals, but it's not because it was good. 636-348-4460 if you want to weigh in. During the telecast last night of the All-Star game, Fox had mic'd up several of the players while they were on the field. Embarrassingly, they also mic'd up some pitchers. Nathan Novoli was the first pitcher mic'd up. While he's pitching, they're talking to him. What is that all about? First of all, if Rob Manford had a spine, the commissioner of baseball, he wouldn't have allowed that. If the pitchers took the game seriously, they wouldn't have allowed it. They would have declined. But they don't take it seriously. It's nothing more than an exhibition game. But your ticket price doesn't reflect that. And then Fox decided it would be a good idea to sit Derek Jeter, David Ortiz, and Alex Rodriguez together in the front row with popcorn and cotton candy and interview them during the game as if they had anything to offer. Rodriguez said virtually nothing. Ortiz simply kept chirping something. You can't understand a word he says. You need an interpreter or at least closed captioning when he talks. He can barely speak English. Derek Jeter, the only classy one of the bunch, when uh, Ortiz and Rodriguez complained about heat at other destinations, but in Seattle it wasn't bad. 
Jeter then quickly said, thanks for the weather report. We've got a ball game going on. Good for you, Derek Jeter. Fox is, a, is an embarrassment in the people they hire. David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez, first of all, are two steroid users. Why would you have the face of the steroid era on your telecast as legitimate commentators? They're not. They're cheaters. And next to them, you have perhaps the classiest player of his era, Derek Jeter. How does that jive for the fans out there? You're trying to attract younger fans to baseball because younger fans have they've become disinterested with baseball. And why wouldn't they? The game is hopelessly dull with strikeouts and home runs and walks. That's all you have. You have a handful, maybe seven, 300 hitters in the game today total. It used to be you didn't even sniff an all-star berth unless you're hitting well over 300. Not that way anymore. If you watched the all-star game last night, you saw players in the National League starting lineup that weren't hitting very well. You saw Mookie Betts, who's hitting 276. You saw J.D. Martinez hitting 255. 255. <laughs> that's, that's an embarrassment. A 255 hitter. You saw 270 hitters everywhere. You saw Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who's hitting 263. These are all-stars. Jorge Soler hitting 254. Pete Alonso, 211. How does a 211 hitter make it into the All-Star game? Can somebody explain that to me? Matt Olson, 254. Juan Soto, 265. I mean, it goes on and on. It's really the death. Major League Baseball today is the death of the 300 hitter. Salvador Perez, 246 for the American League. Brent Rooker, 246. This is what passes as all-stars, truthfully. Julio Rodriguez, 249. These guys aren't even hitting 250. So they treat it as an exhibition game. Fans should treat it as such as well if you want to, if you get into watching it. I watched it so that I could comment on it. But seeing those three people eating cotton candy and popcorn and supposedly offering some insight into the game was the biggest joke of them all. In fact, on social media, it got a lot of comments. None, none positive, by the way. Never forget that David Ortiz was a steroid cheat and so was Rodriguez. One was admitted, one was caught. David Ortiz can't speak a word of English. He's an embarrassment to have on there. And Rodriguez is the sleazy, slimy, uh, penultimate smooth talker who thinks he can talk his way out of anything. But he's a cheater. And it's unfortunate that Derek Jeter's lumped in with those three. I don't know why Jeter's doing it. He doesn't need the money. I guess the the potential to make a broadcasting career attracts him. But why would you even do that? He just sold his ownership stake in the Miami Marlins, or the Florida Marlins. He'll be a Hall of Famer in the first ballot as a Yankee, captain of the Yankees, decorated career, and then you put yourself next to those two? 
All that can do is tarnish you. That can just tarnish you. Well, Moselock uh, actually sat down to discuss the Cardinal situation, and it isn't good, of course. We've identified last place, 11 games back on the law side, 14 games under 500. Fortunately, they get the Washington Nationals to start uh, the rest of the season on Friday. Moselock at least understands where all this nightmarish baseball began. You got to start back in the off season, and you know there was some opportunities that, in hindsight, we wish we would have done. Um, some of the pitchers that we did chase, we just weren't able to to get done. And then the other was we really wanted to give some of these guys an opportunity. And you know when you when you're trying to give your internal guys a, that first shot, um, I think the hindsight is is probably should have had some depth though to cover for it. You're trying to give your guys, your inside guys, a shot. There's nothing wrong with giving your guys a shot if you've evaluated them properly, but you didn't. That's your job. The scouts the Cardinals employ, the general manager they employ, the director of baseball operations they employ, are all supposed to be able to evaluate talent. Clearly, this group cannot. They obviously can't evaluate their own talent, much less somebody else's. So if you're giving your internal players a chance, you certainly wouldn't want to roll the dice on every one of them. And that's what they did. These guys all had a shot last year, so don't give me that baloney that this was all about giving your young players a shot. Every pitcher in your starting rotation pitched for the Cardinals last year. So it wasn't about giving them a shot. But once again, if you had one or two that you wanted to give a shot to, support them with other p- pitchers that have a starting pitcher quality of major league talent, and you didn't. So the code for that is, I can't evaluate a fly, much less a baseball player. And when it comes to pitching, I have no clue. And so in the off season, he chased pitchers, and it didn't work out. Who'd you chase? Of course, you never get the follow-up question from anybody interviewing these people. And he's finally faced with the embarrassment, and baseball certainly had a way of embarrassing him in the first inning last night with those two catches by Rosarina and Garcia and then the pitching of Zach Gallen. He finally he finally admitted that losing Rosarina and Garcia was a mistake. Well, I think, you know, at the time, the, the, where we thought our, our outfield was going to look like has not achieved the success someone like Garcia has or, or even um, a Rosarena. And, you know, you try to pick the right players. Um, you know, at the time, I, I think O'Neill and Bader were both more valued than them at the time of those deals. And, you know, now things have changed. And, you know, you're trying to get it right. You really are. Um, but, you know, clearly those look like mistakes. No, they don't look like mistakes. See, that that's this is where he, he drives me crazy with that arrogance that Moselak possesses. They don't look like mistakes. They're gargantuan mistakes. And he says, you know, given what our outfield looked like at the time, well, that means you poorly evaluated once again, not only with your pitchers, but with your outfield. You thought you had a good outfield. You did not. So what did you do? You took the two players that would become great outfielders and good hitters 
and power hitters and RBI machines in Garcia's case. And you got rid of them. You kept very bad outfielders in their place. It comes always comes back to poor evaluation of your own talent. And that's what we have here. These don't look like mistakes, man. That would be like the Cubs trading Lou Brock for Ernie Brolio and the Cubs saying, you know, in hindsight, it looks like a mistake. It doesn't look like a mistake. It is a mistake. And it's a huge one. And so are these deals. All of these are huge mistakes. You don't get a do-over. And DeWitt told local media during the All-Star break the last couple of days that he believes in Moselock, that he's going to fulfill the two-year extension he gave him this spring training. So there are not going to be any changes made, folks. If you're holding your breath, don't hold it anymore. You'll die. It would seem the Cardinals have lost their will to win. Is that true, Moselock? However you want to phrase it, there there are many teams out there that outspend us or out aggressive us, and they're finding themselves in similar situations. So, I mean, I, I I think I hear that more that that maybe we are more complacent or or um, maybe are arrogant in the fact that we've had the success we've had. But I assure you, like again, like even when we look at at, at what we put together on paper, it 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 should have worked better. It but it didn't. It should have worked better, but it didn't. That's your answer? So you're saying again that your evaluation of your own talent should have been should have worked because that's how you evaluated it. No, it shouldn't have worked because you poorly evaluated it. You know, that's like taking a test and flunking and saying, I should have passed, but I didn't. No. You shouldn't have passed. You didn't study. In Moselock's case, it shouldn't look better because you didn't get the best players. You picked the wrong players. When is someone from that organization going to take accountability? This is what I kept pushing Bill DeWitt III on a month or so ago when we did our interview. When will anyone in that organization be held accountable or admit accountability or step forward and man up and take accountability? Those words you just heard out of Mosaic, soft-pedaling everything, those aren't words of accountability. That's not him saying, you know what, I effed up and I should be held accountable. Whatever the Cardinals choose to do, go ahead, I'll support it. I've milked a lot of money off this organization for a long time. And he's hearing it when he tunes into social media. I still speak to groups and I'm you know, still out there. And, and I think when they're face to face with you, they, they have empathy and, and, you know, feel bad for where you are. Um, I think when you go online and, and you read what people are writing about you, yeah, there's real anger. And, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are calling for my job and uh, I can understand that to some level. I mean, it, it hasn't been a good year. I have a pretty good resume. I think the, the history of, of, of our decision-making overall has been, been pretty good. I, and I think, you know, the, the best way to approach this is, you know, recognize that you do have a problem, admit it, and then try to find a solution. And, you know, we, we understand that. And, and I'm not trying to sit here with you right now and, and try to defend what we did and, and blame other people. I, I, I know that, that we made mistakes and we're going to try to get it right. We? Is there a mouse in your pocket? You. You say you want to identify the problem. The first step is to admit it. The problem is you. You're not admitting that. 
you have a pretty good resume, do you? You have a pretty good resume that you were lucky enough to preside over a time in Cardinal baseball history when Jeff Luna provided the organization with great players and they won they won the World Series, they won won their division and won playoff games left and right, got to the World Series, didn't win, won a lot of playoff games along the way. But those weren't guys that you brought in. People give him credit for bringing Carlos um, Beltran. Carlos Beltran was a free agent. I don't give any general manager credit for bringing in a free agent. That's on ownership. Ownership makes that decision whether or not to pay the guy. But what what's this guy done to develop a winning team? I don't see it. I don't blame, for instance, I don't blame Mosellock for losing Albert Pujols. If Cardinal fans wanted to blame the Cardinals for losing Pujols, it's not Mosellock's fault. That was a free agent. The DeWitts chose not to sign him and pay him that money. They chose wisely. But by the same token, I don't give the general manager credit for signing a free agent. That's the that's up to ownership. The Yankees, for all those years, Brian Cashman wasn't signing free agents when they picked high-priced players. It was George Steinbrenner. So the problem is you. Now, Mosaic says, then you got to figure out what to do about it. I have a suggestion. Resign. They're not going to fire you, so you're going to have to do the honorable thing and resign. What, what leverage this guy holds over the DeWitts is beyond my comprehension. It is mind-boggling. And he, you hear him claim they're going to admit the problem and then try to fix it. No, they're not. You heard him say that they're going to try to do things based on next year. Well, we'll wait and see what they do. My guess is this. You can hold me to this. I don't think they'll do a damn thing. Not a damn thing. This is not a team that is self-reflective. This is not an organization that holds anyone accountable. You heard what he said about the manager. They've done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. I mean, that's hard to sit there and listen to, isn't it? A manager clearly in over his head. According to Mosaic, has done nothing wrong. A general manager slash director of baseball operations. They, the Cardinal ownership has full faith in him, and they'll fulfill his contract extension. Do you get the pattern here? Ownership sees nothing with the performance wrong, or excuse me, nothing wrong with the performance of Mosaic. Mosaic sees nothing wrong with the performance of the manager. I'm sure the manager will tell you, hey, it's not the player's fault. Nobody in the Cardinal organization has the intuition to look internally and say, it's me, it's us. Somebody needs to be changed here. This is not a one-off. The Cardinals would love you to believe this is just a lost season. It's not. And let me tell you, the, the hit there was him saying, it should have worked better, but it didn't. How can you say it should have worked better And how can you say it's not the manager's fault when the manager plays musical chairs every single night with the lineup? 
There is no consistency. There's no logic to this lineup. No one can get into a groove. They're the Larusa used to be uh, the um, the cooler. I used to call him the cooler. As soon as a player got hot, he would take him out of the lineup. This team moves people around every day. It's it's amazing how the manager is not held accountable. It's funny Mozeliak held Mike Schilt accountable, and Mike Schilt did a hell of a lot more winning than Marmol's done. But Mike Schilt told the Cardinal front office, I want to win and this roster won't win. That was the end of Mike Schilt. Now, Bill DeWitt III denied that when we had him on the show. Maybe he's not aware of it. But I know it. I know it from inside sources inside the Cardinals who told me that exact thing. So they can deny it all they want. Logic tells you that it's true. Why else would you fire Schilt? So there's been one guy that's been held accountable for this mess, and that's Mike Schilt. They fired Matheny, too. So if you want to put Matheny on that chopping block, go right ahead. you got two managers, hand-selected by Mosellock, that have been held accountable for the mess that is the Cardinals. No one else in the entire organization. It's pretty amazing. Everybody's doing a great job down there. 14 games under 500. Nothing wrong with the manager. He's doing nothing wrong, according to Mosellock. Nothing wrong with Mosellock. He's doing nothing wrong. The Cardinals have full faith in him. So when Mosellock says the first thing is to admit the problem, then you can fix it. Well, why don't you admit the problem? The problem is in your mirror. That's where the problem is. But I don't, I don't smell a change at all. Nobody down there is going to grab a can of Monster Energy drink. I can promise you that. Let me tell you how Monster Energy drink does their business. They have a plan. They support the scene where the event is. They support the bands that they bring to different towns. They support the athletes and the fans. They bring the favorite bands to visit your hometown. They celebrate with the fans on site. The writers, they throw parties. They make the coolest events they can think of into a reality. The Cardinals take a boring game of baseball and make it even worse. Monster Energy is the world's greatest skiers and skaters and boarders and bikers and rockers and racers and gamers and girls. Monster Energy drink, you can unleash the beast. And that's the way it has to be done. Your thoughts on Mosellox comments are certainly welcome right here. 636-348-4460. Well, we've got... Uh, a guy who's a uh, writer for the USA Today by the name of Mike Freeman. He's black. I, don't, I mentioned that because he has written a column regarding Northwestern's football hazing scandal. It cost Pat Fitzgerald his head coaching job. And the column is all about race. Of course, this had to be a racist event. It had to be a racist coach because he's white. So this Mike Freeman claimed that he should have been fired right from the get-go. 
and we're going to get into that column. But Kevin is up first. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Or I should say good afternoon. How are you? Can you hear me? Uh, King, this is Greg. Oh, I'm sorry, Greg. I'm sorry, Greg. Go right ahead, Greg. Carpe diem, King. Carpe diem to you. Hey, King. I, I had a uh, few tidbits to bring up for you on your sports show. First of all, it's, it sounds pretty good so far. Thank you. Um, on Monday's show, uh, you mentioned that the Cardinals need uh, 45 wins to get to 85. Uh, you actually shortchanged them too. Uh, they have 38 wins right now, so they would need to go 47 and 47 and 25 to get to 85 and 77. And that's that's if the Reds and Brewers don't don't you know go better. So I think it looks bleak there. Yeah, well, think about this. Ask yourself this: What have you seen? that will tell you the Cardinals can play 22 games over 500 the rest of the way. Have you seen anything that would indicate that? No, no, I absolutely haven't. I haven't either. Uh, uh, the other One other thing that I want to bring up, you were bringing up the Tampa Bay Rays the other day and how they were in a slump. Um, being a Braves fan, and I've been a Braves fan for a long time now, but uh, – Tampa Bay Rays, their last two road trips before the All-Star break, they had to go to Oakland and San Diego, and then they came home, and then their next road trip, they had to go to Arizona and Seattle. So that was back-to-back West Coast road trips for them. Not only that, but when they came home, they got the Phillies and Braves back-to-back. So yeah. that was that that's that's pretty brutal for an East Coast team to have back to back West Coast road trips. And not only that, but the All Star game was in Seattle, so what good players that they had, that's three straight road trips out to the West Coast. Well they also have four days off this week. <laughs> so, well yeah, that too. So that that helps them a little bit. It helps them a tremendous but, amount. Um, but here's here's the problem. That, here's the problem for the for the Rays. They lost seven in a row. Uh, you can't lose seven in a row and can be considered the best team in baseball. Atlanta's clearly the best team in baseball. They've, they, they had a 27 and four streak. 27 and four dwarfs the 13 and oh, yeah. 0 start by Tampa. I mean, 27 well, and four is almost impossible. And King, I think, you know, to be honest, you know, we were talking about the East Coast teams and stuff. The whole time that Atlanta's been on this roll, they've been in their own time zone. I mean, they haven't had any West Coast trips. You know, ever since they came back from Arizona, they've been in their own time zone. So I think that's a big benefit for them. Well, when you have to fly from Tampa to the West Coast, that's a big trip. And and you're right. The the schedule maker making them do it back-to-back, it's not fair to Tampa. But anybody can make excuses. Let's be honest as well. When you're playing some of those teams out West, those teams aren't any good. A trip to Oakland shouldn't bother you at all. Right, right. Yeah, I know the Braves lost two out of three there too. But um, oh, the other thing I wanted to bring up, and then I'll let you go, Marcelo Zuna. Um, you were bringing him up a couple times. His April was historically bad, and I mean real bad. Keen, it, it, it was so bad that the Braves played the Royals in Kansas City in April, and when he was getting out every time. Um, the crowd there was booing, and that's because it wasn't Royals fans. It was the Braves fans that made the trip to Kansas City. And ever since the Braves went to Miami in early May, he's been on a tear. And 
now we much like Pujols last year, we can question why, you know, what made him flip. But I mean, he may have been an All Star this year if it wasn't for his April. Well, you can never discount a month of baseball. Yeah, you know that that's like, that's like these people who say, "Well, so and so has 175 yards rushing, but if it wasn't for that 85 yard touchdown run, he would only have less than 100." Well, that's a stupid that's a stupid comment to make, but they make it all the time. Those right. 85 yards count, and baseball right. April counts, so you can't disregard yeah. it. Ozuna hasn't yeah, he been, was, he hasn't been good for a while. Yeah, his April. I think he started out 0 for 40. If you can believe that, it's hard. It is I mean, hard to believe. Don't you th- don't you think you could take a bat and go up there and get a hit in 40 at bats? I mean, you would think so. I mean, they they didn't really have that tough of an April per se. So yeah, I mean, you would think something. Yeah, so. and, the, and the brave for the brave schedule. Their last three series have been in their time zone, but the previous two series were not. And. uh Prior to that, they had a series at Philadelphia, so that's in their time zone. But prior to that, they were in Colorado. So, you know, the, the schedule evens itself out after a while. The, what the Braves done, I, I really don't care if they're playing on Mars. What they've done is really sensational. I have nothing against Tampa either, by the way. The, the, big, the, oh, yeah. big, the biggest problem for Tampa is they've suffered some serious pitching injuries. And uh, I was listening to the Braves telecast uh, during the series, and apparently, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but Kevin Cash, their manager, he likes to pull their starting pitchers early. You know, he's always done that. He did that in the World Series, if you remember, in the, in the uh, COVID year. He took uh, Blake Snell out when Snell was dominating the Dodgers, and the Rays go on to lose that game. That gives the Dodgers the World Championship. Uh, you so, know, I, I'm not a big believer in people like that. They win. And they win with a small budget, so you have to give them credit. But taking your your pitchers out, a guy who was a veritable Cy Young Award winner, take him out, and then you then then they get rid of him, and he went into a hellacious slump. He hasn't been a good pitcher since then, but he is good this year again. He's he's bounced back. Absolutely. So I will let you go. Love the show. Keep it up, and I will keep listening. Thanks, Greg. We appreciate the call. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, if you're a Braves fan these days, I got to tell you, you're in you're in hog heaven because this team is loaded from top to bottom. Their pitching is really good. I think their weakness could be their bullpen. That was their strength two years ago when they won the World Series. It was their bullpen that won it and carried them. They didn't have the great bullpen last year, and they don't have a great bullpen this year. But keep in mind this: they lost Freddie Freeman. So you've lost one of your best players, your premier hitter in your lineup, along with Acuna, and you're still doing this? That's that's some pretty good baseball being played in Atlanta. All right, let me get back to Pat Fitzgerald and this racist comment, this racist column, I should say, written by a, a black writer, columnist in the USA Today. Pat Fitzgerald is a white coach. He was originally suspended after a lengthy investigation into hazing in the program. For two weeks, suspended without pay for two weeks. Everybody agreed to it, the coach, the university, the athletic director, everybody. And then all of a sudden the player, a disgruntled player, had said, well, that's not good enough for me. And so he went to the Northwestern University's daily newspaper and claimed and and whined and claimed how bad this was. And, oh, there was race involved too. Okay, so there's now there's race. Of course there has to be race. But this black writer writing about a white football coach 
says, what these players said should cause everyone in the Northwestern community, every teacher, every alumnus, every human being who considers themselves a Wildcat to ask a basic question, how did this happen? This columnist is taking at face value what some disgruntled players had to say. No facts to back it up. No checking it. No getting corroboration from other players even. Just taking what a couple of disgruntled players had to say at face value making no mention of the fact that Pat Fitzgerald denied it, that Pat Fitzgerald said he had no knowledge of any of this going on. Why shouldn't we take him at face value? Oh, he's white. That's why. Can't believe him. No, sir. Can't believe him at all. It's incredible, isn't it? All this guy does in USA Today is preach about racism, racism, racism. And then, and then says, this isn't the state of Florida. This is Evanston, Illinois. Yeah, you're right. It's not the state of Florida. It, it is Evanston, Illinois, where they hand out reparations to people who were never slaves and force people who were never slave owners to pay them. That's Evanston, Illinois. You're right. D- don't say that as though it's a compliment. Evanston, Illinois should be the most shamed city in America right now. Then he writes this. Remember, this is a black writer writing about a white football coach. Anyone who understands this country well knew it was only a matter of time before accusations of racism emerged from this absolutely putrid story. When you hire a turd to be your head coach, someone who doesn't care about the well-being of his players, racism was bound to enter the chat. No, racism was bound to enter the chat because of bigots and racists like you. That's what brought racism into the chat. People like you, racists. Race baiters, that's what brought that into the play. How dare him say that about Pat Fitzgerald, who has legions of players who have come to his defense, who have talked about the way he formed them as men. And this guy writes, doesn't care about the well-being of his players. My question to Mike Freeman is, have you ever met Pat Fitzgerald? Have you ever had a discussion with him? Because I know people who know him well, and they don't speak about him that way at all. Then he says, and if you think the phrase white nationalist doesn't apply here or is harsh, you're wrong. Oh, thank you, Mike Freeman. I'm wrong then. He says, this quote from the former Wildcat player is both infuriating and telling. Once again, believing what the player said at face value. This is a player who is a Latino player. He played from 2005 to 2008, so he stayed there his entire career. Now, you'd think if it was so racially charged, he would have left. That's what I would have done. But this player, Ramon Ramon Diaz Jr., said the culture at Northwestern was hostile to him as a non-white player. He says, I didn't feel like I could be anything other than white. We never felt like we could be be ourselves. We had to fit in by being white or acting white or laughing at our own people. Now, Mike Freeman writes, when a young human being says something like this, well, it's devastating and extremely telling. No, it actually isn't. What it is is a statement that needs to be examined, needs to be challenged, needs to be followed up on. Go to Pat Fitzgerald. Go to him as a player. Ramon Diaz Jr., did you talk to any of the assistant coaches? Did you talk to the head coach? Did you talk to the athletic director? 
Did you complain to anyone about this treatment, supposed treatment? The answer is, altogether class, no, not a peep. Did you transfer? No, you stayed. So you you decided on your own to continue to suffer all of this racial abuse when you could have transferred anywhere. When you could have gone in and talked to the head coach. Coach, are you aware that this is going on? But you didn't do that either. Mike Freeman, the black writer, writes that this culture secretly festered because people didn't think this type of racism existed at Northwestern. We don't know if it does or not. Neither does he. At least not to this degree. This is Northwestern, for goodness sake. Liberal school, cool people, progressive. Oh, they're cool because they're liberals. This is unbelievable. This is in a, on a sports uh, department of a, of a newspaper. Barack Obama is building his presidential center a short distance from the campus. It doesn't get more person of colory than the first black president. This guy is the biggest bigot I've ever seen in my life. First mulatto president, let's correct him. He's incorrect on that as well. The Daily Northwestern interviewed three former football players who described racist incidents. Three. Do you know how many college football players make up a football roster? (laughs) How many players are on campus at one time? 90-something. So three complained. Hmm. One player said, there was a certain culture of enabling racism and other microaggressions that I had to experience and that other offensive linemen that were people of color had to experience. Microaggressions? What are you talking about? What racism are you talking about? Diaz claims that an assistant coach made a joke about how his family must know how to clean homes. Well, let's let's ask the coach, right? Wouldn't that be the responsible thing to do? Ask the coach if he said that? Did Diaz go to Pat Fitzgerald and say, hey, the offensive line coach said this about me, to me? Didn't do it, though. One player said the team was segregated by race with black players on the defensive side of the ball and white ones on offense. How many white ones? How many? Probably more at Northwestern than at most schools. But I can tell you, Mike Freeman, that if you examine the roster of any major college team in America, any Power 5 conference team in America, you will find 75% of the of the roster black. So please don't try selling that nonsense. That's unbelievable. This type of thinking is hardcore racist, he says, and goes back decades. The belief some racist coaches have is that offensive players are smarter and must be white. And the defensive side of the ball is about speed and athleticism, where you stash all the black players. This guy's ungodly, isn't he? I got news for him. He's obviously never been around a football locker room. He's never been around players or coaches. Football coaches would sell their soul to win a game. They don't care if the player is black, white, Indian, Asian, Martian. They don't care. They have their own built-in belief system that white players aren't as good as black players. They do have that, but that would cut against what Mike Freeman's arguing here, that somehow 
football coaches at the Division One college level in the Big Ten Conference have it in for black players. <laughs> By the way, some of these coaches are black. Interesting. This is some of the ugliest hierarchical system, a racism that you see in sports. And it was at Northwestern, he says. And racism travels well. It's a member of every frequent flyer program. Wow. Here's his grammar at the end. This is the saddest part of this story, but it's the realest. Realist? It's not even a word. This is what you put up with in this world today. Unless you fight back, unless you resist a bigoted racist and race baiter like Mike Freeman at USA Today, this is what you have to put up with. Well, there's no reason to put up with it. Any responsible journalist, any responsible journalist, and there are very few. There used to be a lot. There are very few. If you're covering this story in Evanston, Illinois, or for any national outlet, you would call Pat Fitzgerald, at the very least, call Pat Fitzgerald, ask him if these things are true. Call Diaz, the player, ask him which assistant coach said your family knows how to clean houses because you're Hispanic. Go ahead. Call the coaches. Find out the truth. Call other players. Call some of the black players. Have you ever experienced racism from the coaching staff? But Mike Freeman called none of them. None. Not one. Not a single coach. Not a single player. Not the athletic director. Not the president of the university. Nobody. He took a couple of quotes from three players in the Daily Northwestern, which isn't even a real newspaper. It's a college publication. That would be like the Umsel Current. That's the campus newspaper. Not Pulitzer Prize winning stuff that comes out of these campus newspapers, I can promise you. Down at Mizzou, the home of journalism, the best journalism school in the country, the campus newspaper was called the Maneater. That doesn't ring Pulitzer Prize to me. So this is what he used as his basis to call a coach a racist, a white nationalist, one who doesn't care about the well-being of his players. That's the most irresponsible newspaper writing. I won't call it journalism because it's not. The most irresponsible newspaper writing I've ever seen. And I hope Pat Fitzgerald sues him and sues that newspaper. He's going to have a lot of suing to do because he's going to sue the school. I'll guarantee you that. That's coming first. And that's already been hinted at. Fitzgerald's attorney said he was told by the university attorney that the coach was fired for cause. Well, if he was fired for cause, that opens up a whole lot of different things. There are two agreements here, too, that are at stake. One of which is the agreement that Pat Fitzgerald reached with the university president the week before he was fired that he would be suspended for two weeks without pay that a law firm outside of the school, an independent law firm that was commissioned last winter to investigate these claims, came back with 
no evidence that Pat Fitzgerald knew anything about these charges. And the president of the university admitted that, that those were the findings, when he announced the suspension. So now days later, did Pat Fitzgerald do anything differently in the last few days? No. Whatever he did or didn't do had already been done at the time of the suspension. So you enter into an agreement that's agreed upon by everyone, all the parties, and now the president of the university breaks that agreement. What it tells you is that Northwestern has no character, has no morals, has no integrity, but not for the reasons Mike Freeman thinks. The president of that university does not respect the sanctity of a contract, written or verbal, in any way, shape, or form. Here's what it's all about. Northwestern signed the contract with Pat Fitzgerald for a 10-year deal at $40 million. That's what it's about. Northwestern wants out of that contract. Even though Pat Fitzgerald did all the fundraising for a new $286 million facility, stadium on that campus. But they went out of the contract. They went out of the $40 million deal. So it's clearly a breach of contract. There isn't any question about that. He was fired for cause. There's no question about that. And yet the university's own investigation said that Pat Fitzgerald was unaware of any of this. So how can you fire him for cause when you admitted he knew nothing about it and did nothing wrong? It's a loser for Northwestern. You better get a big check out because you're going to pay Pat Fitzgerald. That case will never see the light of day in front of a jury. Can you imagine going to a jury if you're Northwestern and saying, well, yeah, he deserved to be fired. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you enter into an agreement a week before saying he didn't deserve to be fired? In fact, saying that your own independent investigation said he did nothing wrong? Pat Fitzgerald is going to be a very wealthy man in in the not-too-distant future. And people like Mike Freeman at the USA Today should never be allowed to write a column again until he comes up publicly and apologizes to Pat Fitzgerald, every player that's ever played before at Northwestern for Fitzgerald, apologizes to Northwestern, and admits that he is, in fact, a raving racist and race baiter. That's all he is. But that's what USA Today has become. You know, I used to subscribe to USA Today. I haven't subscribed to them in years. Time Magazine, years. The local newspaper, years. I don't watch ESPN except for live events because of their race baiting. It is what it is. You can't get around it. That's what they do. But this case has no chance of winning for Northwestern. It is a loser. And so you better work to settle it, and you better work to settle it fast. In the meantime, Major League Baseball has a very, very intimate relationship with gambling, and now with Las Vegas because they're moving the Oakland A's there. And yet they continue to maintain a lifetime ban for Pete Rose is legitimate. He was banned because he bet on games. while he was managing the Cincinnati Reds. But he didn't bet on his own team to lose. Not once. Not one ounce of evidence ever suggests that he did. 
If he was betting against his own team, yes, he should be banned for life. But he wasn't. No one claims he was. He has served this ban for a long, long time. Longer than any player in the history of baseball. Other than Shoeless Joe Jackson and the eight men out with the the, uh, Chicago White Sox known as the Black Sox. Rose has applied for reinstatement numerous times. But Manfred, who is a complete buffoon, isn't going to allow him back in. It's never going to happen. He said the move to Las Vegas by the A's won't affect Pete Rose's situation at all. And Pete Rose violated what is rule number one of baseball, and the consequences of that are clear in the rules. Well, he's not the only one who violated that, but nobody else got a lifetime ban except for those White Sox players. Baseball has no idea how to conduct its business. They have no idea. Individual teams do, but the the league office never has. They hired a used car salesman as their commissioner, Bud Selig. Now they've got this guy who succeeded him. Manfred has no idea what he's doing and hasn't the spine to make the right decision, even if he knew what he was doing. Baseball should celebrate the return of Pete Rose, the all-time hits leader in their game. And should send a loud and strong message. If you are caught gambling on baseball, this is what will happen. You'll serve a lengthy suspension. And use it as an example rather than a punishment. He's been punished enough. Most people feel that Pete Rose should be reinstated. Most baseball fans. Every poll has suggested that. And yet here we sit. Pete Rose out of baseball. Our phone lines are open for you, 636-348-4460. It's unconscionable and shouldn't be the case. It just should not be the case at all. I'm not the biggest Pete Rose fan, just for clarification, but he should be back in the game. Folks, if you're looking for a new car or a new SUV or a truck, look no further than stl-cars.com. They're right here in in the St. Louis area. They are owned and operated locally, local ownership in Ellisville, right off Manchester Road. Go to their website, and you won't have the headache that you feel when you go to the dentist of buying a car because you go to the website and look at all of the selections, over a 1,000 cars, SUVs, trucks. And then you pick the one you like, call or text, 314-626-3251, 314-626-3251. Ask for Don. Tell him the one you want. Tell him what you want to pay for it. And presto, it's yours. If there's something that you want that's not on the website, tell him that, and he'll go find it for you. He did that for me. Did it for my son. I've purchased three vehicles from him already. My son just purchased one. His came from Alabama. My last one came from Tennessee. STL-cars.com has a huge inventory of dealerships all over the country. They can find inventory for you. And they'll get you what you want at the price you want it at. So don't let it feel like you're going to the dentist when you want to buy a new vehicle. 
Don't waste your Saturday going from dealership to dealership. Go to the website, stl-cars.com, look at all of the vehicles, then call or text 314-626-3251. 314-626-3251. Ask for Don. This is where all the blues players go for their car needs. All the blues players deal with stl-cars.com. 314-626-3251. And I promise you that you'll be happy if you do. All right, let's take a quick break, and we will come right back with more. We'll have your phone calls. Also, still to come, an interview I did with John O'Leary. It's called On Fire. John O'Leary suffered the worst burns a person can suffer when he was a young boy. He had given up on life, was content to die. Most thought he was going to die, except for one person who came into his hospital room one day. That person was Jack Buck. Wait till you hear this story. That's coming your way after the break, and after if you want to call and talk about any of the issues, we'll do that. We'll have John O'Leary for you. That's all still to come right here in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, King's Court, on kevinslaytonshow.com. Oh, oh, oh. 
We welcome you back in. Kevin Slayton with you. Glad you're along for the ride on this Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday afternoon. Our phone lines are open, 636-348-4460, Hey, folks, a lot of companies spend their money on ad agencies, on TV commercials, on billboards. They want to tell you how good their products are. But at Monsters Energy Drink, they do things differently. And they do it that way because it's not just a drink. It's a lifestyle in a can, and their lifestyle is outdoors. They want you out there. They want to give you that boost. They want to give you that push or that focus you need, that that punch of energy that you need to get through the day or get through your workout. Make sure when you go to the gym you take a can of Monster Energy drink with you because that will get you there. Just when you get a, you hit that wall and you say, I can't go any further, boom, Monster Energy drink. Unleash the Beast. Monster Energy Drink is yours. That's your ticket. 636-348-4460. I want to congratulate our research assistant sent me a a note. We want to congratulate Luke Mann, third baseman for the Mizzou Tigers. Uh, Hit 17 home runs, hit 270 this season. That 17 home run number was the most for a Tiger since 2004, sixth in Mizzou history. Drafted in the... uh, Final day of the Major League Baseball draft. So nice going to Luke Mann. Drafted by the Oakland A's. Pretty cool. Doesn't get better than that. Number 406, 14th round pick. One of the Golden Griffins and a Mizzou Tiger drafted by the Oakland A's. Hey, they need help in every area. So maybe Luke Mann can jump right in. You know, we, we played those Mosaic clips earlier for you where he's talking about recognizing the problems and going and fixing it, and then the Cardinals go out and draft three outfielders in their first four picks. Outfield is not their – well, it's one of their problems, but pitching is the desperation call that this team is making, and yet they, they don't go out and try to fix their pitching. Everything Mosaic said is out of both sides of his mouth. He must be a liberal. That's all I can think. How do you say that you've recognized the problem, now you're going to go out and fix it? Everybody in the free world knows your problem is pitching. And rather than get pitching, you draft three out of your top four picks or outfielders, one pitcher. And the pitcher wasn't drafted until the fourth round. How do you explain that? Well, like a liberal politician in Washington, he doesn't have to explain it. The media here in St. Louis will never ask him about it. He won't come on our show because he knows it's not going to be lollipops and giggles. So he doesn't want anything to do with the show. Fine by us. We don't need John Mosellock. And he doesn't need us. And he sure as hell doesn't want us because unlike his boss, Bill DeWitt III, Mozilla doesn't have the spine or the courage to come on and answer questions. He'd rather get the soft tosses that he gets from everybody else in town and then never be followed up. For instance, when he said, we have to recognize the problem and fix it, you have to follow up and say, don't you agree that your main problem, other than you, is pitching? And I would have asked him, have you considered resigning? He claims he has a great resume. Well, maybe somebody else will think that. 
But until he's gone, this organization won't improve. And by improve, I mean compete for a World Series title. When you're drawing 3 million fans a year and you have the unabashed loyalty of a fan base like the Cardinals have, you have to do everything you can to get to the World Series and win it. The Cardinals get there on a lollipop gag and a, and a, and a hope and a prayer. Other teams build to get there. All of the major teams consider it a bust if they don't get there. And then they do try to do something about it. And that's not, you know, I don't equate success with spending a fortune. I mean, the Astros spend right around where the Cardinals spend, and the Astros have been in the World Series for the last six years. So you don't have to be the Yankees or the Dodgers and spend like drunken sailors, but you have to spend smartly. And what Moselock and the Cardinals have done is not spend smartly. So we'll wait and see what happens. Phone lines open at 636-348-4460. If you want to weigh in on any of those things, feel free to do so. But in the meantime, John O'Leary visited with us a few years back. John O'Leary had written a book called On Fire. He's a special person, by the way. I mean, if you if you ever meet him or if you ever have occasion to hear him speak, and he speaks all the time to groups, He's a, he's a motivational speaker, and I'm telling you what, you better pay attention to John O'Leary. Because when he speaks, he's telling you real-life scenarios. That's what he does. And he will talk to any group anytime. He's 43 years old, a guy who has come through it all. He's written different books. The latest is called Overwhelming Odds. He's written the the big bestseller, On Fire. You don't get any better than John O'Leary as a person. He wrote a a third book called In Awe. On Fire and In Awe were national best-selling books. And John came in to talk to us to tell us his story one day, and it has a sports connotation to it because the motivation that we talk about here on this show, when we when we talk about Monster Energy Drink, for instance, we talk about that inspiration, that push, that all people need to overcome the odds. And Monster Energy Drink, as part of their mission statement, a relentless pursuit of victory, being your best, being at the top of your game. And in John O'Leary's case, everything was against him. He didn't need just a push. He needed a miracle. And he needed to somehow find in the heart of a nine-year-old little boy the will to go on after he was burned so severely. Well, I'll let John tell the story himself, but I think you'll find it inspirational Get your Kleenex boxes out because you might cry. But you'll stand up and applaud, I promise you that.
And we welcome you back into the Pass Blue Ribbon Gateway Buick GMC Kings Court. Kevin Slayton with you on a Monday afternoon. A nice Monday afternoon. We're going to get a little crazy weather during the week, but it'll warm up again for the weekend. Johnny O is here. John Riker from Harpo's and Owen is here as well. You can join us on the Marshall Wireless phone lines. Toll free 855-282-TALK, 282-8255. Well, last week I read a column from Dan O'Neill, my favorite writer in the local newspaper, uh, regarding John O'Leary's story. And John was... Nine years old when he was, uh, like most of us would do, getting into mischief out in the garage. And uh, In John's case, it happened to be with matches and gasoline and a fire started. And John suffered third-degree burns, 100% of his body. And John is here with us today. He is the author of a new book called On Fire. Did I pretty much get the background right, John? Uh, yeah. Mischief, kind of... Mischievous guys like we are, we tend to get into a little bit of... Every every male listening right now knows exactly what you're talking about, and the lady listeners have no clue. We'll fill them in, I'm sure, throughout the show. <laughs> the men are saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Right. But your story is an inspirational story because I believe if I read correctly, you were given about a 1% chance of survival. Yeah, and Kev, the way they figure out burn mortality in 2016 is they take the percentage of the body burned, they add your age, and that's how likely it is that you'll die. Really? So wow. 30 years ago, I mean, there is no chance of this kid surviving. So the very fact that we survived is a miracle. And uh, to have the life we have today is just, you know, it's grace, man. So we feel really fortunate to be here. And I, St. Louis is my home. I, I love it. I feel like we've been served well by this community, and now it's our time to serve back into it. You're a father. I'm a dad. Dad to four kids. A wonderful husband. Or, I'm a husband. I don't know. I don't, I don't maybe, maybe we should call your like wife. That. We're all we're all wonderful husbands in here. She that's, uses a very different right. adjectives. Yeah. Well, your book is is not an it's not an autobiography so much as it is a tribute to what you call angels in your life. Yeah, man, we all have them. I I went 21 years without telling anybody that I was burned, and uh, you know the, the secret was out. The only one who did not know it was the guy living it. So I, I hid from it forever. I tried to cover up the scars and, and mask with various other decisions. And then my mom and dad, eight years ago, guys, wrote a book about it. They printed 100 copies. They have sold over 70,000 copies since. And so the, re, the response of that allowed me to kind of look in the mirror, embrace the story a little bit more, and realize that the tragedy that I'd always kind of run from and these horrible scars was, in fact, the greatest gift of my life. It, it led to not only guys like Jack Buck and so many others coming into my life, but it led to where I went to school. Smet Jesuit, if that's your next question, then St. Louis University. It led to my wife. It led to four kids. It led to my career. I am a fortunate guy today as a result of being burned terribly as a child. You know you're in here with a CBC guy and a St. Louis U High guy over there. Rumors, so, yes. so that the Smet thing is uh, <laughs> it's it, university it, it, as, perfectly. Pro- as proud as I am and as honored as I am to have you in here, that the Smet thing could be left out. Right. All right. <laughs> I get paid a little bit by the Jesuits every time I drop. <laughs> You you too? Yeah. 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 I don't think the CBC guys Christian get brothers don't pay us yeah. anything. <laughs> no, we, we pay it back to the LaSallian tradition over here. Yeah, we got two CBC guys, by the way, so we outnumber all of you guys. But let's get back to the to the story of your life. Nine years old, these these horrific things happen. Tell us how Jack Buck got involved in this because we're gonna get to the part where not only did you lose your fingers, but you, you Jack Buck was encouraging you to write. Mm. And the way he encouraged you, I, I get chills just telling the story. But tell us a little bit how how Jack Buck came to know you. Yeah, so I'm burned on a Saturday morning, uh, like you were saying, Kevin. Typical boyhood experiment, mixing gasoline and fire. <laughs> the result for me was, of course, disastrous. I, I end up with burns on 100% of my body, trapped in the garage, burned for 
several minutes before my brother Jim saves my life. They raced me off to the emergency room. They slowly piece me back together, but it's not looking good at all. Barely hang on through the night, and the following morning, I'm tied down to the hospital bed. You can't move your arms or your legs. My lungs were burned, so I can't breathe. I put a trach in. Now I can breathe, but I cannot eat or drink or talk. And uh, my body swole to twice the size of normal, so I'm tied down to this bed, unable to do anything. But hear, feel, fear, be mad, pray, and dream about what could happen tomorrow. And into this mess, into this darkness comes footsteps. The door opens up. The footsteps get closer. A chair gets dragged across the floor. And as you already know, man, it's the voice of Jack Buck, the voice of my childhood. All your listeners would remember that incredible voice. He's our, he's our idol, man. He's, he's our hero. So he comes into my room on January the 18th, sits down next to me and into my darkness says, uh, kid, wake up. You are going to live. You are going to survive. Keep fighting. And when you get out of here, we are going to celebrate. We'll call it John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. Kid, are you listening? And I nod back at him. And he says back, good, keep fighting. And then this old man walks out of that room. He leaves me tied down in darkness, but absolutely on fire for life. I mean, that one visit, guys, I remember it verbatim, word for word, I was told later on that when he left the room, he put his head against the glass wall outside and just started weeping, which if you know Jack Buck at all, this is common practice. He wept at Hallmark movies. Jack Buck is weeping outside of the room. A nurse runs over, gets down, looks up and says, Mr. Buck, are you okay? And he says, I'm not sure. The little boy won't make it, will he? And the the nurse, this is the expert, looks up and says, Mr. Buck, there is absolutely not a chance. It's just his time. Wow. And then the cool thing is this. I mean, the nurse is right. There is not a chance, apparently. Well, she's actually wrong because here you are. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm here for so many reasons. And one of them is grit, but the others are guys in this room and Jack Buck and so many others. And I thank God watching over all of us. But the following day, that little boy without a chance is laying in the hospital bed. The door opens up. Jack Buck walks in a second time, sits back down a second time, pulls the chair across the floor a second time. And then he says, kid, wake up. I'm back. I'm back. You are going to live. Pay attention. You are going to survive. Keep fighting. John O'Leary Day at the ballpark will make it all worthwhile. And those visits and that encouragement went on the entire five months that I was in the hospital. And then seven months later, that became a reality at the ballpark. Right. So we had John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. I'll never forget Jack Buck met me at the car, man. It's 104 degrees outside. It's July 7th, I think. Could have picked a better day, right? Should have picked. Would have been a better host if he waited till the fall. But (laughs) this poor burnt-up kid is being rolled in through the AstroTurf. It's steaming hot. He rolls me around. I sit next to Whitey Herzog. We watch batting practice. Then he rolls me into the the clubhouse, players-only clubhouse. Uh, rolls me about 11 feet in. Then he realizes that all 25 Cardinals are completely naked. So then he rolls me out of the players-only clubhouse. <laughs> that was my experience with the Cardinals as a nine-year-old boy. Uh, a truly scarring experience. <laughs> <laughs> we go upstairs. We broadcast John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. And uh, Mike Shannon to my left, Jack Buck to my right, and this little kid in a wheelchair grin ear-to-ear the entire night. It was It's an, an amazing experience that I will never, ever forget. Gives me chills right now, just that story. I mean, that's incredible. If uh, if you didn't get your eyes watery when you were just telling that, then there's probably something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> because it just, it hit, I mean, I'm like Jack Buck. I'll cry at the drop of a hat. But 
this is so impressive what he did, what you did, what right. other people did for you, your parents who were there helping you fight all along. And then, John, as we talk with John O'Leary, his book is on fire. It's available at all the local bookstores. It's on Amazon.com. And as you walked in, isn't it number two in the Wall Street Journal list? Yeah, that's right. How about that? Congratulations. We've got a best-selling author with us on top of everything else. But it, it then became a ritual where Jack wanted you to learn how to write again mm-hmm. uh, because you had lost your fingers in surgeries and they had to amputate fingers and so right. you couldn't write. Tell us how that went because uh, and what Jack did every so often to, to get you to start writing again. So the whole thing just blows my mind. As, as a man now, I have my own family. Jack had his own family. Jack traveled a lot. Jack had responsibilities. As you all know, listening, Jack was an extraordinarily charitable guy too. I mean, he's everywhere. And he visits a little kid that he never heard of in the hospital once, which I think we can all agree, dude, that's enough, man. Burn centers stink. You never want to go back there. He's told the little kid's going to die, and he goes back. Already, it's it's a crazy story, and he goes back for five months. And then he takes me down to the ballpark. We have John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. He learns a little kid can pound soda and do a lot of other things, but he can't hold anything with his hands. My, my fingers have been amputated for the listeners right now, so I can't hold anything supposedly with my hands. So Jack looks down at this little boy who is scarred and broken and beat down, unable to do anything. And he's having John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. But rather than saying, I've done enough, I'm checking out, I'm moving on. I think the Phillies are in town tomorrow. (laughs) He thinks about it, prays about it, reflects journals, and asks the question, what more can I do? The following day, I'm at home. I'm in a wheelchair. My mom comes in from the mailbox. She's got a brown box. Inside the little box is a, a ball from Ozzie Smith. Below the ball, signed by Ozzy, is a note from Jack Buck that says, Kid, if you want a second baseball, all you have to do is sign a thank you letter to the man who sent the first one. Dude, we were together the night before. You you know I can't use my hands. But I, I also think he knew the power of motivation, the power of inspiration, the power of meeting people at all ages where they are. And he met a little boy with probably the one thing in the world that would motivate him, baseball. Right. And so I remember yelling at my mom to get me a pen. She comes over <laughs> to me. She holds my two hands together. My first note goes out to Ozzie Smith. We mail it off, and a couple of days later, I'm at home chilling out, no school, and a second package comes in the mail with a second baseball inside of it with a second note below it that says, Kid, if you want a third baseball. <laughs> so I write another note, mail it off, and a couple of days later, I get another baseball with another note that says, Kid, if you want a fourth baseball. <laughs> If we're trying to fill time, we can keep going, but I have a feeling most of your listeners know where this is going by now. 60 of them in all, right? 60, Kevin. I mean, that, that, sometimes we say numbers and you're like, ah, oh, that's a lot. But, boy, man, think about it for a moment. Imagine going up to 60 of your friends one by one, having them sign something, and then run off to the post office, ship it, and then do it again the following day and the following day. 60 times. It's an incredible act of love that he never told anybody he was doing. And it got better. Um, you graduated in, what, 1999 from St. Louis University? That, that, that may be the real miracle of the entire story. This kid, this unmotivated kid graduates college. So that, there's the real story there. But, yeah, I graduated SLU in 99. And who was in attendance at that graduation? Yeah, so was Jack Buck there by any chance? Buck may have made a, a quick appearance. So my mom and dad, family, everybody's there. And we partied at the old Bush's Grove, actually, afterwards. We had a little little room there on like a screen porch. Jack Buck came by with a package and a note, as he was known to do. And uh, This the, would be the 61st ball. 
this is 61. This one's even more memorable than the, the raw hide balls that he given before. This note read, kid, of course, kid. I'm not sure Jack Buck ever knew my first name was John. He called everybody <laughs> kid, so it was, it was great. It was Probably perfect. lousy with names. <laughs> so Jack says, kid, this means a lot to me. Hope it means a lot to you, too. Enjoy, it's yours. And, you know, my family gathered around. It's a small, intimate setting. I open up this package, look inside. It's dark. I can, I can see a baseball, but I can't really see what it is. So I actually walk outside into the light, use both hands, lift the baseball up. And uh, then realized that this is the Hall of Fame baseball that he received in 1987 when he was inducted into Cooperstown. Uh, the note went on to say, kid, this means a lot to me. I hope it means a lot to you, too. This is the baseball I received when I went into the Hall of Fame. It's made of crystal. It's priceless. There's only one like it. Don't drop it. <laughs> and then he wrote, it's yours. Love, Jack. And and that's the end of it. One of the last times I really ever spoke to Jack Buck was when he quietly, Kevin Slayton's not covering this thing. You know, the, the news channels aren't there saying this. This is not in one of his autobiographies. He does all of this expecting none of it ever to be revealed to anybody, mm -hmm. which I think is maybe the most powerful part of the whole story. It really is. But that's how he was, as we all know. Jack Buck did so much for charity. Some people knew about, some people did not, as your testament to that. And this crystal ball, by the way, John brought the crystal ball here to show us today, the ball that Jack Buck received as, a, as an inductee into the Hall of Fame and gave to John O'Leary. And as Dan O'Neill aptly pointed out, you did not drop the ball. Not only that ball, but you didn't drop the ball in life. Man, I've been extremely blessed to have the people around me that I've had. When I got home from the hospital, I think this is one of the coolest stories. It's already a miraculous recovery. The little guy should not have lived. It's been five months and dozens of surgeries. Lost my fingers, scarred and broken at home in a wheelchair. Mom makes my favorite dinner, which was og rot and potatoes. I was going to ask, had you not mentioned it? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's, it is just cheesy goodness. It's good for you, I think. So I'm, I'm looking forward to eating these potatoes in front of me. The problem is I don't have fingers. I don't have hands. And so my... My sister, Amy, grabs a fork. She scoops up potatoes. She brings it toward my mouth. And then my mother says, Amy, you drop that fork. If John's hungry, he'll feed himself. And so, so when you, you think about not dropping the ball, I have been surrounded my entire life by men and women, by parents, classmates, announcers, volunteers, nurses, doctors, my spouse today, uh, of men and women who just would not allow me to. That's a strong thing for your mom to do. I mean, that had to be hard for her. Well, she ruined dinner. I, I still don't really <laughs> like my mom. And, you know, we can laugh about it 30 years later as the guy walks into the studio and changes diapers and everything else that normal guys do in, in life. Or some of us listeners should be doing in their lives. But I here, here's the deal. I, that night, I think she reminded me, it's not just about not dying. Okay, not dying's not living. Right. I think she was trying to remind me and equip me that, man, this is your life. You know, get off the cross, burn the wood, get after it again. And that's a powerful message that I needed to hear as a kid. I think I need to hear it sometimes as a man. I think we all have victim parties occasionally. And it's a, a battle cry that I think our listeners around the world need to listen to more astutely, man. But, John, that is an easy thing for us as adults to hear and say, gosh, you know, that's what you needed to hear. But when you're nine years old. I imagine that might have been a tough thing to hear. Yeah, I wasn't kidding when I say she ruined dinner. Yeah. I flipped the plate. I cried. I uh, I told her she was ruining dinner. I told her she was a horrible mom. I mean both still. But the reality is she, she was not a horrible mom. She was bold. This is great love in action. 
Eventually, the potatoes were served in front of me. Eventually, I put two hands together, picked up a fork, scooped it up, looked at my mom with as much hatred as I could muster it up, and ate some freaking potatoes. And then ate some more potatoes. And I've been eating potatoes and, to quote Dan O'Neill, <laughs> holding the ball ever since. But, again, that's that's my mom, and that's Jack Buck, and that's the therapist. And I get to share through this book, through our speaking, even on the show, how fortunate I am to have had the life I have and to encourage others to do a little bit more in their lives, not only for themselves, but also for the individuals they bump into each day. And mention your wife's name, if you don't mind, because she deserves a, a nod, too, from all of us. Yeah, I mean – John is perfect for radio. Beth is perfect for TV. Okay. Beth is hot. She's beautiful, man. She's got brown no, hair. You don't mean any pun by hot. No, nah, I mean, she, she's hot in every fashion, brother. She is on fire. And, uh, not only that, she's beautiful inside and out. I, I really way out kicked the coverage to use a football acronym here. So she, she is a beautiful lady. I'm lucky to be married to her. She's a St. Louis girl. We met at St. Louis University and, uh, she, her name is Elizabeth Grace. We call her Beth. God, God works funny ways, doesn't he? Through all things. I, I think we only think he works when the 1999 of the Rams are winning the Super Bowl, man. Thank God. Well, the reality is he also works when some jackass billionaire moves him out of town. He, he works through sports. He works through non-sports. He works through tragedy and triumphs. And I think that's part of the reminder of our message. You're doing public speaking, aren't you? We do a little bit of motivational speaking. Uh, it started off from very humble background. I started speaking eight years ago. My first talk was in front of three Girl Scouts. I practiced the talk for 50 hours, and I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> I got sick in the parking lot on the walk-in. It was a nine-minute talk. I looked at the notes the entire time. That was the beginning. We've uh, delivered, I think, 1,600 talks since all 50 states all around the world. That nine minutes, the first two minutes, you've probably figured, well, I'm done. 15 minutes, now I'm finished. Oh, I've <laughs> only gone two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> That's about right, man. I never looked at the watch. I was looking at the notes, too busy to worry about the watch or those kids in the room. John O'Leary is with us. His book is on fire. It's at all of the local bookstores, so please pick up a copy, folks. It's also on Amazon.com. John, tell us a little bit about what's in the book. I know there are stories of inspiration and, and your story as well. But we talked about Jack. We talked about your mom and, and your and your family. Other people came into your sphere, right? Uh, as, as well as Beth, yeah. That were there to help you. As, as I said, you call them your angels. Can you give us a couple of stories? Yeah, of course. Involving that, you know, one one of my favorites, Kevin, might be when I was first burned. I have no muscle mass. You know, I, I can't do anything for myself, and so every day they do these bandage changes. And so for the first six weeks or so, these guys, these gals would just carry me down to the tub and they would then do the bandage change. The bandage change would take two hours to peel off the bandages, clean the body, lift me up, wrap me up, and they carry me back to my room. So it's a horrible process that we don't need to unpack right now, but that was part of my day. But about six weeks in, one of my nurses, this guy named Nurse Roy, <laughs> big, tough guy, he looked exactly like Apollo Creed. He still looks exactly like Apollo Creed would pick me up. He got me on my feet. He did not let my little toes touch the floor. So he's holding me above the ground with my legs dangling between his, and he starts dragging me back toward the bandage change. And on the walk back, he says to me very firmly in my right ear, uh, boy, listen to me. You are going to walk again. You might as well get used to it. That he pulls me back with my legs just lifelessly limping between his on the way back to the tub. And I remember thinking to him, this guy is an idiot. I'm never going to walk again. What's he? Why is he doing this? He's causing more pain. And then he lifts me up. He does the bandage change, carries me back. And then the following day, I'm having a pity party in my room. My life is over. I'm never going to do anything. 
And that guy walks in. He unhooks me from the bed, gets me back up into his arms, pulls me back out of that bed, back down the room with my legs dangling between his. And he says to me again, boy, listen, you are going to walk again. You might as well get used to it. Come on. I'll walk with you. He drags me back. This goes on the five months that I'm in hospital. I hate this dude. Roy, if you're listening right now, (laughs) I hate this dude. And then about four months in, I realized, man, Roy's onto something. One day, not soon, but one day I will walk again. It took me nine months, guys, but I started walking. I started running. I played soccer like every other kid here in St. Louis plays. I, I run around in life. I travel around the world in no small part because some minimum wage nurse named Roy picked me up and cast this massive vision for what was possible in my life. And if it ended there, I think the story's cool. But I I, I spoke to a company in Alabama uh, 30 times, actually, in the summer of 2011. And on the final time, because I lost total touch with, with Nurse Roy, he moved to Brownsville, Texas. The final day I'm in front of Alabama Power Company, they uh, they pull me back up on the stage when I finish. The president of Alabama Power Company says to me, fella, what was the name of that nurse who did so much good work for you? And I said, Nurse Roy. He said, where does he live now? And I said, I think Brownsville, Texas. He said, what did he say? And I said, man, he used to say, boy, you're going to walk again. And then the, the leader of this organization says, uh, that is not what he would say. Mm-mm. I bet you what he would say would sound more like this. And then I hear this big booming voice behind me, like the voice of God. And it says, boy, you are walking again. I am proud to walk with you. Wow. And then you fall to Alabama. I mean, there's nothing in Eufaula, Alabama. The joke about the Eufaula is you can't get there from here. There's, there's nothing down there, man. They pull back a blue screen and out steps Apollo Creed, Nurse Roy. They paid a private investigator three weeks salary to find this guy. Dog wow. the Bounty Hunter would have had him in 24 minutes, but it takes this dude three weeks. They well, track paid him by the hour. That's right. Like we all are in this room, man. They, they pay him by the hour and... They flew him down. They reconnected us. And I think it's one of the most beautiful stories from our book that this guy who served selflessly for all these years had no idea the impact he had on some burnt-up little kid named John O'Leary. He never saw me walk again. But he did that day. He did that day, and he's done many days since. That's a fantastic story. Good grief. But that just shows you the kind of caregivers that are out there, whether they're in emergency rooms or they're in hospitals or they're in therapy. I mean, these people are special people. Right. I, I love the, the folks who do healthcare, and but I, I think healthcare is just human touch, man. It's, that's radio. You know, I mean, that, that is radio, and that is what we do when we go out, go into a a coffee shop. I think we underestimate the ability we have professionally and personally to positively lift up the people around us in life. And part of what I hope people take out of this book is we can be victims or victors over life. We, we can either have an awesome life, regardless of what's going on around us or within us, or we can be brutal and miserable and mean to everybody else around us to make sure they have lousy days too. And the examples I've had so many people as they've shown up in my life is they, Roy is why I'm with you today. Jack Buck is why I type. My brother Jim saved my life. My mom and dad breathed possibility back into it. And without every one of those guys doing exactly what they did when they did it, you and I aren't talking today. I'm going to guess that your kids are going to have a tough sell if they don't get their homework done, or or, or if they come if they come after their ball game and say they're crying because they went over four, right. I, I'm going to guess they're not going to have a sympathetic ear. There are a lot of spankings delivered in, in my house. I'm hoping one day they pay off. But right now there is a lot of whining. I'm one of I have four children, 
The oldest is 10, 10, 8, 6, and 4. So, yes, there's fighting and yelling. We are a very ordinary family. But at the end of the day, I think we, we O'Leary kids, and we listeners, brothers and sisters, we're called to be anything other than ordinary. And the way we do that is we make a choice on the front side of the day to do something bigger for others than we do for ourselves. What's incredible, I think, is, I mean, a young boy on the verge of, of dying, burned to death, all these great people, some major celebrities locally, some unknown, Nurse Roy, right, made such an impact on you and got you to where you are. But in reality as well, the impact you've made on all of them and everyone you've touched is probably equally as large. Right. And that's that's what's incredible about this. So I, I used to ask Owen, my, my dad uh... – or Joe, I used to ask Joe Buck, Joe, why did you, why'd your dad do this, man? And, uh, I won't even try to impersonate Joe. I've already had a lot of listeners turn off when I try to do Jack. So I'll <laughs> stop while I'm ahead. But, but Joe said, John, the payment you gave him was a look in your eyes every single time he walked into your room or did something kind for you. And I, and I think that that it was enough back then. I had no idea I was delivering anything other than taking, but, but joy is contagious and it is also, it's a choice. It's a choice we make, and I, I was fortunate to make it as a kid, and I think we can choose to make it today, and it does change the way we look at our day, and it also changes the interactions we have throughout the day. John O'Leary is with us. His book is On Fire. It's at every bookstore locally, and it's on Amazon.com. Just got a text, John, from my girlfriend who said, John O'Leary is a hero. Do you hear that? And because I think people that are listening to you right now feel that way. Tell your girlfriend to call me if she needs anything. I, I, I like her style. As far as your question, I... No, I don't feel like a hero, man. And I don't think Jack Buck felt like a hero. And if you know more of the book, you you know that I was well-served by a guy named Gino Cavallini. That story is amazing if you want to talk about that. Former blues player. Former blues player back in the 80s. What he did for me is nothing short of heroic. What he does today is nothing short of heroic. And yet Gino doesn't view himself as a hero. I, I have been so blessed in my life. And today I get to go around the world, if you can imagine, holding up a mirror reminding people of who they are today, where they've been, how valuable those stories are, and really challenge them on what kind of story they want to write going forward. John, I know, not from experience, but I know from people that I know that burn victims are in extreme pain. And when you were describing Nurse Roy picking you up, was there great pain when he was doing that? I I can't imagine. It's barbaric. And whether it's that exact exact example or the example of physical therapists doing their job, frequently I remember as a child, and I, I just hope your listeners hear this with an open heart, crying while whatever procedure was going on, whether it's a bandage change or they're drawing blood or they're doing physical therapy or occupational therapy. And then I would look up and through my tears, I would see my nurse or my technician or my therapist crying too. And I remember as a kid thinking, dude, what are, what are they crying about? Right, I'm the one being the bandage thing. I'm the one in the wheelchair. What's his problem? And I think it just goes to show you the commitment that these men and women have to do their job at expense to themselves. Roy went above and beyond inflicting an awful lot of pain because he knew maybe he had to to create a vision for me that I did not yet have for myself. I mentioned my girlfriend. She's an emergency room physician, and she rode with a burn victim two hours to a burn unit. She said the lungs are the worst. Yeah. Is that your experience? You know, that typically what kills us is something going on with the lungs, some type of infection, pneumonia, something, liquid starts filling the lungs. So that is the experience. That is one of the great dangers for burn victims, and that was one of my problems. That's why I was on a trach an hour or so after I got into the emergency room. But here you sit. You're a happy guy. Well, I've, I've been drinking from a large part of the day, so <laughs> it seems to chase away the demons. 
Well, it doesn't chase my demons away. They just come back more ferociously. <laughs> In truth, man, I'm, I'm, I mainline life. I think if you, if you can't walk outside on a spring day in St. Louis and look at the, the cherry blossoms, then you need to rub your eyes a little bit more and look again because they have been there all day. They were there yesterday. They're going to be there tomorrow. And if you don't start looking, you're going to miss it. Your wife, Beth, must be a very strong person. That's awesome. And, and you know, I my face is not burned, but my body is tragically burned. From my neck to my toes, it's third degree. It's deep scars. It's busted and broken. And I, I always wonder what kind of girl would see past the obvious. Because we, we judge the cover man first. You judge the cover, all of us. And uh, you got to be a big-hearted, powerful leader to see through what everybody else just can never get past. And Beth took my hand the first night. We met quite literally. We danced uh, at this fraternity event. We stayed friends for years. I asked her out. She told me that I was like a brother to her, which I think was her way of saying no. <laughs> she said that again a year later when I asked her out a second time. But about a year later, she actually ended up asking me out. We dated for two years. We've been married for 13 our marriage, not, nothing's perfect, but we have an awesome life together. We're working to make it better today than it was yesterday. And, uh, man, I just feel blessed to have found someone like her. Well, you know what? She's blessed to probably have found someone like you. I, this, the human spirit is an amazing, amazing story. And you, in, in what you've done, what you've accomplished, you epitomize the human spirit and all it can be. Well, I mean, you really do. I'm grateful, and I'm, I'm not trying to push everything off onto others, but I, I have been well taught by a lot of people and, and our speaking our book the book on fire it's it's to challenge people to wake up from accidental living no more excuses no more finger pointing no more blame shifting no more talking about how st louis sucks enough we have an awesome community cardinals are playing baby yachty's thumb is going to get better okay i mean <laughs> hang on for it this is going to be a great season it's going to be a great year but let's make it great today don't wait for it the book is on fire by john o'leary all bookstores around town have it amazon.com has it Number two on the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list. Uh, John, uh, this has been a moving experience for me. Uh, I think probably for John and Owen and, and Jack in this room as well. And we can't thank you enough for coming by. And, it is my pleasure. Um, you are a hero. I can't wait to read. I can't wait to read the book. Great All stuff. Right. Thank you guys. Thanks for the work you do in St. Louis. You betcha, John O'Leary. I tell you what, folks, that was a day that uh, you never forget when John came into the studio and he brought that ball that crystal ball that Jack Buck had received at the Hall of Fame as his part of his induction ceremony into the broadcast wing of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, and that he gave that to John. I tell you, there, if, the, the chills, I get chills right now, and I've heard this interview several times, and it still brings you to tears. Several different areas of that interview, as I sit here listening again today. What a tremendous story. I don't know that Anybody else I know has an outlook like that guy does. By the way, when he talked about the Cardinals back in that day, it's not the team that's playing today. John might The Cardinals of today might dent John's optimism. Just might. But how about his mom telling his sister, put the fork down. If John wants to, if John's hungry, he'll find a way to eat. You talk, that, that redefines tough love, doesn't it? That's a strong woman. But, boy, he was surrounded by some great people. Wow. Nurse Roy. <laughs> Somehow I get the feeling I can picture Nurse Roy. When he said he looks like Apollo Creed, probably Apollo Creed and bigger and stronger. But what a story. And the book you can still get, it's called On Fire. 
It documents the story and the, the life of John O'Leary and what he went through. I agree with him, by the way, about his wife. We do all tend to judge by the cover. And then you look deeper inside the book and you find different things. And she was able to do that. That is a special kind of woman. And John's a special guy. Imagine having John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. That's your motivation to get through that hospital and be able to write a thank you to Ozzie Smith and every other ball player 61 times, 60 times of autographs, 61st time being the crystal ball. But John's right. Break it down to this in its simplest terms. How many times have you or me, I have not, gotten up, gone to one of your friends, had them sign a baseball, and in this case, Jack Buck is going to all of these different Cardinal players. Put it in a box. Send it off to the hospital. And then get up and do it again the next day. Is that unbelievable? That's 60 days in a row. Two months of your day, of your time. That in itself, it sounds small, but look what it did for John O'Leary. And then you knew, <laughs> you knew Jack Buck was going to be showing up at that graduation, didn't you? And typical Jack Buck, and if you got to know him, that's the kind of guy he was. He didn't want anybody to know about it. Not a soul. I remember flying to the Super Bowl with Jack Buck one year. We were sitting next to each other. And he, at the time, was on the committee that elected the players into the Hall of Fame and coaches into the Hall of Fame in the NFL. And they always met the day before the Super Bowl, the week before the Super Bowl, a few days before the Super Bowl. They voted, then the players and coaches were notified, and it was released to the public the day before the Super Bowl. It still is that way, by the way. And Jack was saying, you know, I go into these meetings, and a lot of these media people want to find reasons not to put so-and-so into the Hall of Fame. He said, I'm always saying to them, let's find reasons to put somebody in. Why are we always looking to keep somebody out? And that's Jack Buck. He's an interesting guy. He really was. And boy, could he broadcast a baseball game, a football game. If you've never heard Jack Buck do NFL football, and you probably have, he used to do Monday Night Football on the radio nationally. But he also worked CBS television of NFL football. It's amazing. And what an amazing story that Jack Buck found out about. You you probably, like me, kept thinking that you were going to hear some story, well, it was Jack Buck's neighbor, and yet it never was. It was somebody he didn't even know, somebody he'd heard about. That's pretty amazing. That gets to me now. Carpe diem to Jack Buck and to John O'Leary. John called me later that night, by the way, after that interview, and he said it was the best interview he's had ever, which really was a great testament to him. We just led him down the road to tell a story. But we certainly appreciated it. We appreciated his time. We appreciated the story in the book. On Fire is the name of the book. John O'Leary is the author. You'll love it. It's a great gift for someone, especially someone who's going through a tough time. Tell them the story and then give them the book. Can't hurt. Might help. 
Well, folks, uh, that's going to wrap us for today right here in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court on kevinslaytonshow.com. Don't forget, grab your can of Monster Energy Drink today. You're going to the gym. You're going out to run. You're going out to ride your bike. you got some a big day ahead of you at work. It'll give you that extra boost and push and keep you focused and give you that punch of energy to get you going and last through whatever your endeavor you're involved in. You need Monster Energy Drink. Unleash the beast. You'll be glad you did. We're back fighting the good fight again tomorrow in the sports world at noon. But don't forget our current event show at 7 o'clock in the morning right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. The podcast of both on this website, on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Anchor, and any place else that has podcasts. If you want the sports show, it's called Monster Energy Drink King's Court. And the other one is just... What is the other one? (laughs) It's just King's Court. All right, folks. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, Maureen. So long, everybody.